Joel, you want to know something? What? Every now and then, say what the f What the f gives you freedom? Freedom brings opportunity. Opportunity makes your future. If you can't say it, you can't do it. Welcome to Sailing in the Mediterranean podcast. I'm your host. My name is Franz. Well, I'm back in Salt Lake after a month of sailing, and it was a great summer this year. It was a great time. We had some good winds. We had some bad winds. We had some rain. We had sun. And at the end, I was glad to get off the boat. It was a lot hotter than I was hoping it would be when I ended up putting up the boat. On my way to the ranch, I'm sure you're interested in knowing the ongoing saga of getting a building permit in Wasatch County, Utah. It is a pain in the rear. These bureaucrats are justifying their existence by making my life miserable. I came back to a 35-point response that I had to make because these people apparently can't read building plans. So they need to have all these individual items spelled out for them. This is information that as a general rule is already contained in the plans that the architect drew up for me, but these people, these bureaucrats, these building inspectors, or the building department has to justify their existence somehow, and the only way they seem to be able to justify their existence is to delay, 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 delay. So, I'm going through this 35 point, pointing out the obvious to these people. Well, I shouldn't say I'm doing it, my, my architect is doing it. I just handed it over to him and I shook his head and he said, I can't believe this crap either. He said, nowhere else have I ever seen this sort of requirement for a building permit. But that's Wasatch County, Utah. Now I've been thinking about regulation some more. You know, I'll rant just a little bit, then I'll get on to the more fun stuff. But who does regulation benefit? Regulation benefits the big established companies. I'm pretty convinced that a lot of regulation in American business comes from the established businesses. They may say they don't like regulation, but in reality it's a form of restrictive competition. Large builders have the ability to hire people full-time to deal with this crap. Where the small builder, the home builder, the one-time builder is shouldered with all this crap that they have to learn one time and not do again. So it's a form of restraint of trade in my opinion. In spite of the fact that they always try to justify this by saying, oh you build a better house. Uh, I don't believe that. I know I'm going to build a good house, it's my house, but apparently the government wants to tell me how to build my house, and not only that, they don't seem to be able to read plans. Okay, enough with that. So anyway, I'm heading up to the ranch today. I'm heading up because the health department said they wouldn't pass on the plans unless I went up there and pumped out my septic tank. Now, I've never had any problem with my septic tank in the 30 years that this house has been there. It has a big drain field. The drain field's been working effectively, but they said, well, we won't pass on this unless you go up and pump out your septic tank. 
and they have to have an inspection done of the septic tank by <laughs> by the people that are pumping it out. So that's another $400 added to the cost of doing business. Well, anyway, I'm on my way. I'm on Interstate 80 heading, heading east right now. I haven't quite got out of Salt Lake. I'm going to be turning on and off the air conditioning as I go along, so it's going to have a little bit of background noise. I turned it off for the introduction. So when you hear a little bit of hissing in the background, that's because I turned on the air conditioning air conditioning in the car, which I'm going to do right now. Well, my first crew arrived. That was Mike, Nick, and Erica. And we had a great time. We had a great time. Now, Mike, Nick, and Erica, we go way back. I remember when Nick came on the boat for the first time when he was around, probably I think around eight years old. This is when Mike had a Wilderness 30 that I was racing on on the Great Salt Lake. And he was just such a little kid, and Mike was so concerned to make sure he was safe. And it was a cold day, I recall. He was bundled up in a coat. And Mike made sure his son was well taken care of. But now Nick's, I think, I think in his 30s now. He's an adult. He's an FBI special agent, headquartered up in Helena, Montana. He couldn't talk about much of what he did because he was in counterintelligence in that section. And I thought, counterintelligence in Helena, Montana, what's that all about? He said, well, there's a lot of government contractors up here because of the Indian reservations. Apparently, there's some advantages to doing business with the government if you do some of your work or have some of your offices on Indian reservations. So there's a lot of uh, attempt of intellectual property theft up there. And he's, he's involved in that, but he didn't give me really any details about any of the cases. I wanted to get some, some good stories, but he didn't really want to share any good stories with me. But anyway, they arrived, and they brought way too much luggage. Each one of them bought, brought two big bags. And I, I, I thought, come on, guys, you, you both people, you know better than this. But they brought two big bags each. That's six big bags in my little boat. And uh, so I, I set them down. We put them on the quarter berth and up in the uh, forepeak of the boat, or forecastle of the boat, whatever you want to call it. And then at night, the first night out, we piled it all into the cockpit. <laughs> well, guess what happened that night? We had a big rainstorm. And I went up and threw a big tarp over it, but the rain went right through the tarp and into their luggage. So the next day they were spreading out all their clothes throughout the boat trying to dry them out well after that they wouldn't put the they wouldn't put their bags in the cockpit so when I'd get up to go pee in the middle of the night, which I do I'd have to climb around all these pieces of luggage to come out but we had a good time, I, I wish they'd been able to stay with me longer but we visited Samos, we visited another island, I can't remember the name of it, just south of Samos, and this was the first time I'd visited that island. And then we went over to another harbor on, on the island of Samos, and then back to Pythagoria, where they caught a ferry back to Cushadasi and flew home. That was the first crew, they were fun, we had a great time, and I'd like to get them out again sometime as well. So the next crew was Andy and his son Jameson, 
Andy's a friend of mine in Salt Lake, a business associate in Salt Lake, and his son. Andy had been to Pythagoria before. He had actually, when he was just out of college, and this was probably back in the 70s, 1970s, back in the golden age of, of vagabonding, in my opinion, back when kids didn't graduate from school with $50,000 of debt. They could graduate and then take, a, take some time off and go travel and see the world. And that's exactly what he did. Nowadays, you're not seeing that because kids are taking on huge amounts of debt to get through school. Back then, you could get through school. It wasn't too expensive. You had to save some money along the way, but it wasn't, it wasn't um, oppressive like it is now. So he's, he and a friend of his traveled to Greece. They were kicking around. I think they visited a lot of other countries but Greece. But he told me this story that he went to Pythagoria back in the 70s and he hired a, a smuggler, a fishing boat, to take them over to Turkey. So they were smuggled into Turkey and then they worked their way up to Istanbul and then they realized they didn't have an entry stamp into Turkey so they had to smuggle themselves back out. So they went up to around Thessaloniki and snuck across the border getting back into Greece back in the 70s. So it was good to have him and his son on board. It was a, it was a life experience for both of them. Neither one had been sailing before, so this was a good experience for both of them. They had a great time. They were a good crew. I tried to teach them what they wanted to learn. And my attitude when I have crew on board is if they just want to relax and take it easy, that's fine. If they want to learn, I'll teach them as time goes on when we're doing different maneuvers with the boat. We're tacking and jiving and so forth. Try to explain to them why we're doing things when we're doing them. And the last crew was Jack Andrews and Neil, two of my listeners. I've never met them before. I've done interviews with them for this podcast and we talked on the, on the phone and on Skype, and Neil's handling my social media, but I'd really never met him. So they came on board as strangers, and we had an absolutely wonderful time. I consider them friends now. They came on as strangers, and I consider them good friends now. And they're both welcome back on my boat anytime. I'll talk more about that in, in future podcasts. Didn't want to get too much into it now, because Along the way, we all produce content for future episodes of this podcast. And Neil talks and Jack talks and we talk together. We'll, we'll go through some of those recordings in, in future episodes. This episode, I'm just going to talk about uh, my, my initial recording on the boat and having some work done on the boat. And when I got on the boat, I needed to change the... Well, I needed to fix my refrigeration, which I've talked about, the ongoing saga of the refrigeration, and uh, the heat exchanger on the boat. I needed to de-line the heat exchanger on the boat. And I talk about that in this podcast. But just to report, I had no overheating on the boat, and the refrigeration this summer worked perfectly after the work was done. So those two headaches are out of the way. I have future headaches to deal with. Next year, next year I need to rebuild my forward hatch. I need to have some repairs done on the bowsprit boomkin. And I'm going to have, probably have some new sails made. My sails are the original sails on the boat. And so I got two quotes, one from Q Sails in, in Izmir, and another one I'm waiting for the quote from UK Sails. 
which has an office in Marmaris, Turkey. Now, the quote I got from Q Sales was, in my opinion, a pretty good quote. It was around $2,300 for a new lapper and a new main with um, full batten main with three reefing points. I'll have to verify that bid, but that seemed to be reasonable, in my opinion. We'll see what UK Sales comes back with. He told me he wouldn't give me the bid on it until probably February, and because that's when the sales go on. He said, in the winter we'll have special sales, and since price is an issue for me, and time's not of the essence, he'll send me a quote sometime in February. So, Greece has been in the news a lot. I just wanted to make a couple observations on what I saw at sea level in Greece this summer. I was sort of hoping, and, and I know this is a pipe dream, sort of hoping that Greece would leave the euro and go back and become an independent nation again, as they should be in my opinion. But it didn't happen. Uh, it's extended pretend again with the EU. And, and I'm convinced that <laughs> Greece can pretty much do anything they want, and the bureaucrats out of Brussels will do anything they can to extend more debt to Greece, extend more credit to to Greece, let Greece borrow more and more money from the EU, and, and basically switch that money from the banks that made the bad loans to begin with to the public sector, which is the uh, International Monetary Fund and the World Bank and the uh, European Central Bank. So the European Central Bank is doing exactly what our central bank did, our Federal Reserve did, is when the banks made all those bad loans for those liar mortgages, those liar loans, well, the Federal Reserve <laughs> went to the banks and said, "Oh, we'll take those, uh, we'll take those loans off your books. So we'll buy them at uh, par. So here's 100% of the money back on these bad loans. Now go out and loan some more money." And of course, that's about what the central bank is doing for Greece and their quantitative easing. They're going and buying back those bad loans that the banks had made to Greece and give the money back to the bank. So, uh, as I've said before, this is not a Greek bailout by any stretch of the imagination. This is a, a bank bailout. So the money that's going to Greece is basically going from one debtor to another debtor, to a new debtor, or creditor, I guess it's a creditor. Greece is the debtor. It's going from one creditor of Greece to another creditor of Greece. Anyway, so a couple observations. On the island of Leros, there's a castle which was built during the Crusades. So it's way up on the hill. It's, you can see it from all over the island. It's a very strategic location. Andy and Jameson and I rented scooters and we rode up to this castle because that's where Andy and Jameson got off the boat and that's where Neil and Jack joined me was in Leros. So we, we rented scooters one day. We rode up there. And as you walk into this castle, it's been restored. And of course, there's a big plaque out there that says this was restored with European Union money. And of course, that was years ago, and it's now falling apart because it hasn't been maintained since then. There were three of us that went in. We had the place to ourselves. We paid three euros each to go into this castle. There were two people fully employed, uh, one woman taking the money, the three euros each, and another man that I think it might have been a volunteer position, but he might have been paid a nominal amount that was in charge of the museum that was at the castle. So we walked around this castle, this fortress, and it was it was 
pretty impressive. It was a lot of fun. We wandered into this museum, and the man that was in charge of the museum started talking to us about the history of Lewis. And he was going into great detail about the various people that had invaded Lyros over the years, the Ottomans, the Italians, the Germans, and he spoke perfect English. And, and along the way, I stopped him. So, you know, the history of Lyros is interesting, but I was more interested in what was going on now. So I stopped and I said, you speak perfect English. How come? And he smiled and said, well, you know, I, I grew up in Houston, Texas. And I was a maritime lawyer, and I retired early and came back to my family home in Leros and get inherited. And we got to talking, and he said, you know, it's interesting what's going on with the economy here. He said, when I first came to Leros, my neighbor came over and, and talked to me and said, the first thing you need to do is go out and buy two goats. And he said, well, why do I need to do that? He said, well, uh, because the European Union pays you a subsidy for each goat that you own. And he said uh, the subsidies, and I'm thinking the subsidy, he said it was around 32 euros per goat per year. But I could be wrong on that. So the curator that I'm talking about said to his neighbor, said, well, why do I want to do that? That's only 64 euros a year. It's really not worth it. And his neighbor said, well, you, you just don't understand, do you? He said, what you do is when the man comes to verify your goats for your subsidy every year, you tell him, here's two goats, but the other 98 goats are up on the mountain. I have a herd of 100 goats, and they're all up on the mountain grazing right now. And the curator said, well, what do I do when he wants to see these other goats? And his neighbor said, well, of course, you just give him a couple hundred euros, and you'll sign your certificate, and you'll get your subsidy. So corruption is rampant in Greece and it's ingrained in the culture. The other point he made to me is he said, you know, there's an island, and I can't remember if he said it was Ostapalea or Amogoros. I'm not sure which island, but it was one that started with an A. So my, my guess is it was Ostapalea. He said, over on Ostapalea, one-third of the population is blind. He said, amazing, isn't it? There's blind shopkeepers, there's blind taxi drivers, there's blind checkout girls at the grocery store. I said they're blind. Everybody, there's a third of the population is blind. I said, how does that happen? He said, well, there's a doctor over there that for a fee will certify that you're blind. And of course, once you're certified as being blind, then you get additional welfare checks, subsidies. So, what I noticed when I tried to pay with a credit card this summer is no, the, the credit card machines were were broke for some reason. For some strange reason, it seems like every credit card machine that I tried to use was broke. And, oh, but did you have any cash? And, oh, there's an ATM over there you can go get some cash at if you need it. So it's a cash society. I didn't get any receipts. A couple times when we rented scooters, they took our money or they gave us the scooters and away we went. Another couple times, they wanted us to have motorcycle licenses. And I found ways around this is just going from shop to shop to shop until I eventually found a shop that would uh, rent me a scooter without my motorcycle license. But knowing that, I'm going to get a motorcycle license uh, on my driver's license so I don't have this problem in the future. 
some of the shops would only rent you 50cc scooters if you didn't have a motorcycle license. Uh, but then in other, sh other shops we found we could get 200, uh, actually not 200, 150, 125, and 150cc scooters, which seem to be a lot nicer than the 50cc scooters. So if you're going over there and you want to rent a scooter, uh, probably save yourself a headache and get a motorcycle endorsement on your driver's license before you go over there. Anyway, a couple of these places you just hand the cash and take the scooter. No paperwork, nothing. That was the way it was in Niseros. The other thing I noticed this year, twice, once in Liros and once on Calminos, I saw elderly couples going through the garbage. I'd never seen this before. And they were well-dressed, but in the case in Liros, the elderly couple was going through the garbage of a greengrocer trying to find some useful vegetables or fruit that they could use. And then in Calminos, I just saw them going through garbage cans. I've never seen that before. Things are a lot tougher than you think they are. Also, I noticed a lot of human smuggling on the island of Samos when I was sitting at the harbor waiting for my next crew. I saw a group of about 40 refugees, and these were obviously refugees. They were all wearing exactly the same clothes. They were all black, and black is not normal in Greece. They had obviously come over and tried to be smuggled over the night before between Turkey and Greece. And it's very close there. It's very easy to jump across between Turkey and Greece right there. They've been caught and they were being escorted by the police. I don't know what they're going to do with it. I also saw the same in Kalminos. And from what I heard in talking to other sailors is the island of Kos, K-O-S, is overrun with refugees. These are either, I'm not sure where they're from, Northern Africa, Syria, uh, but the, the whole country is being overrun by uh, refugees. Don't know how to, I don't know how they're going to deal with it. I don't know how I deal with it either. When I got back to Turkey, when I pulled, it, pulled into Bodrum, there was a Coast Guard boat there, a big Coast Guard boat, and it was full of uh, refugees as well. And when I went to clear in, they were all sitting down there in the customs area waiting to do whatever they were doing and I saw them escorted to uh, police vans a little later on. So things are tough in Greece. I don't think Greece will ever be let out of the EU. There's too many bureaucrats that do not want to see their, their power, their domain diminish and it'll be basically a subsidized country from the EU as far as I can see. Extend and pretend seems to be the plan of the European Union for Greece. And of course they're worried about if we let Greece go, then Spain may go, then Italy may go, then Portugal may go. And in my opinion, that would be great. I always point out that as soon as every one of these countries join the EU, prices doubled. Every one of these countries' prices doubled. When you talk to the locals, they tell you that's the case. But if you talk to the bureaucrats, they say, oh, no, no. Prices went up a little bit, but they didn't double. But they doubled. Anyway, that's a long introduction. I'm just uh, going by Park City, heading towards Heber City right now. And I'm just going to play this one segment that I recorded while I was still in Cushadasi this summer. And, well, let me get my quick advertisement out of the way before I do that. I've put together a series of audio lessons for the ASA 101, the ASA 103, and the ASA 104. 
These are available at the website, medsailor.com. Also, you can search for them in iTunes and Amazon and CD Baby. If you're studying for any of the ASA courses, this will help you prepare for the written portion of the exam. It cannot teach you how to sail. You've got to get on a boat and spend time sailing to learn how to sail. But they're useful if you want to study while you're driving or working out or when you don't have time to sit down and read a book. I think it's always good to read a book. There's certain concepts that cannot be taught by audio that you need to look at charts and you need to visualize on paper some of the concepts. But a lot of the concepts, I think I do a pretty good job of explaining. And I've had some very good comments from from listeners uh, that have reviewed it in Amazon and iTunes. And I appreciate those reviews. Thank you very much. All right, with that out of the way, with that advertisement out of the way, let's get on to this relatively short podcast. Well, it's May 26th. I'm sitting in Setter Marina, Cushadasi, or Cusadasi, or Cusadasi. I'm not sure exactly how it's supposed to be pronounced. I've heard myself corrected many times to the point where I'm totally confused about the proper pronunciation of what I always say is Cushadasi. But anyway, my crew arrived today probably around 1 o'clock. I was expecting them earlier. I was expecting them around 9 to 10 o'clock this morning. I thought they had spent the night in Selchek to visit Ephesus yesterday. As it turned out, they ended up spending three days in Istanbul, and then they caught a flight down today and then got on the boat. By the time they got here, it was too late to clear out of Turkey and sail over to Samos, Greece. So I said, why don't we just take it easy? Go ahead and get your gear on board, get situated, and and then go up and visit Ephesus. I didn't want them to come to Turkey and, and not have the opportunity to see a little bit of Turkey. They'd been to Istanbul, and Istanbul is a great city. A fantastic city. If you've never been there, it's like the Wizard of Oz saying, you know you're not in Kansas anymore. So they really enjoyed Istanbul, and I wanted them to have the opportunity of of visiting Ephesus while they were here, along with all the other people off the cruise ships that are in the harbor right now. But I got here last week on Wednesday night, late Wednesday night, and I flew from Salt Lake City to San Francisco and then caught a direct Turkish airline flight from San Francisco to Istanbul and then I caught a connecting flight from Istanbul down to Bodrum. Now I didn't go to Izmir because I plan on putting my boat up in Bodrum at the end of the summer so I thought well I'll fly to Bodrum, fly in and out of Bodrum, that way I have a round trip ticket. And the interesting part of it, the the ticket to Bodrum was cheaper than just a flight to Istanbul. So it was a better deal for me to fly all the way to Bodrum than fly to Istanbul and then catch a connecting flight to Bodrum. Then I took a bus the next day from Bodrum to Soki and then another bus from Soki to Kushadasi. And then once I got into Kushadasi, I caught a Dolmish from the bus station to the marina. So I took public transportation all the way here. didn't end up having to take a taxi at all. And as a result, it was very inexpensive transportation to actually get here. Got on the boat, and it's always a struggle. You're fighting jet lag. 
you're tired, you ache from sitting down for a long period of time. It was funny. When I got into Istanbul, I had to clear customs and go over to the domestic air terminal to catch my connecting flight from Istanbul down to Bodrum. And when I got off the plane, I, I thought I had almost a 12-hour layover. And I went up to the man at the Turkish airline desk, and I said, is there an earlier flight? And he said, no, no, there's not an earlier flight. And I said, well, how long does it take to get downtown on the subway system, on the train? And he said, oh, you don't want to do that. You'll miss your flight. I thought, oh, no. I don't, oh, no. So I was walking around the terminal. I thought, well, let me just check the time, make sure my watch is correct, knowing in my mind that I had a 12-hour layover. <laughs> well, it turned out I was totally off by 12 hours. The clock on the wall said 1,800 hours. And I kept saying, that's not right. It should be like 6 in the morning, not 1,800, but 6 in the morning. And I caught another traveler, and I said, is it in the afternoon or is it in the morning? He said, it's the afternoon. I said, oh. So, yes, if I'd tried to go downtown, I would have missed my flight. Anyway, I was able to make my connecting flights, and I went and stayed at a little cheap hotel that I've stayed at before in Bodrum and then came up here. Two big projects I had to deal with. The big problems were, number one, I needed to change my or clean out my heat exchanger on my engine. I've been having overheating problems on the engine. And number two, I needed to get my refrigeration working. So as soon as I got here, I asked the marina to get a refrigerator mechanic out to my boat pronto and i love the turks they show up when they say they're going to show up they do their work well and they pretty much stand behind it so this older gentleman he was probably in his 50s he came he did not speak much english at all so he took a look at the boat he'd looked at it earlier in the winter and, and he couldn't determine what the problem was because I had the electronic module with me in Salt Lake. I'd taken it home with me to test it to see if there was anything wrong with their electronic module. And all, I'd already determined in my mind that the problem was with the compressor and not the electronic module because we tested the electronic module and it was fine. So he got on board, he looked at it, he said, okay, yeah, it's a compressor. So he confirmed my diagnosis of the problem. And I said, okay, well, what I need is a Danfoss BD50F. That was the compressor that I was told by the manufacturer that I needed. And I had a part in the United States that I could get the compressor. Well, unfortunately, over here, Danfoss is an expensive brand. There's apparently a Chinese compressor that they say is every bit as good, but I don't trust it. And I said I wanted Danfoss, and I could not just get the compressor. I had to buy a whole new refrigeration unit, and I ended up paying way too much money for the refrigeration unit when I only needed the compressor. The compressor in the states would be around two hundred fifty to three hundred dollars just for the compressor. The electronic module is about two hundred fifty to three hundred dollars. So I ended up getting a refrigerator. It arrived uh, the two days later. The mechanic came down here. We looked at it. We were going to put that refrigeration unit in. We decided it didn't make much sense because it wouldn't be as effective as if we took the compressor off of that unit and put it back on my original unit. So that's what he did. He took it back to his shop. He unsoldered the compressor from the one I just bought, 
put it on my unit, put it all back together, did some jury, jury rigging of uh, the fan and the funneling of the airflow through the, I guess it's sort of like a radiator. It's called the uh, uh, condense, condensing unit. And I think it's a condensing unit. I'm not sure exactly what it is. But anyway, brought it back to the boat, spent a full day with him and two other guys working on it and putting it in and getting it tested. And, and then we ran it for two days. And then he came back last night and confirmed it was working just fine. In the meantime, I was able to get a hold of Rich at Cool Blue Refrigeration. That's my unit. And ask him a couple of questions. Because this is a refrigeration unit that uses a sight glass for determining the charge. The advantage of using a sight glass is an amateur can recharge his refrigerant. Where with most refrigerator units, you have to have a professional with gauges to do it. But with a sight glass, there, there's a technique where you basically look for bubbles in the sight glass. And when you see bubbles, you add a little more refrigerant. Let it run for a while. If the bubbles are still there, add a little more refrigerant. And you have to be careful you don't add too much. They said that's the biggest problem on a sight glass unit is you add too much refrigerant. Well, we ran it. It's cooling down well. I noticed the amperage draw is only about two and a half amps. So it's hugely more efficient than my old refrigerator. My old refrigerator would draw seven to eight amps when it was running. This one's been running and it's running about 2.4 to 2.5 amps. So it's extremely efficient compared to what I've been used to in the past, which means I'm not going to have to recharge my batteries as much as I have in the past. That's good. But I was watching the mechanics very carefully, the refrigerator mechanics very carefully. And, and let me tell you, if I were a young man and I were going to go out and try to make a living or make some money along the way, I think I'd go and learn the refrigeration trade. You could do that uh, through some trade schools, some nights classes, or online to a certain extent, but it's going to take some actual hands-on experience to learn it. But let me tell you, every marina in the world has boats, and every boat is going to have a refrigeration problem at some point in time or another. Probably about 90% of the time, it's going to be an electronic module that needs to be changed. I've had to change an electronic module on my previous unit a couple times. And it's a simple matter of unscrewing a screw and unplugging something and plugging it back in. So I thought, okay, what are you going to have to have to be a refrigerator mechanic? You're going to have to have some specialized tools. The tools that I see that you need, you're going to have to a gas you're going to have to have, first of all, a gas detector to check for leaks in the unit. Just a little battery-powered gas unit. You're going to need to have a small oxyacetylene torch set up for doing brazing. And you might be able to get away with map gas, but I'd probably go with oxyacetylene because you can really concentrate the flame on what you're working on. They had to put a new dryer on my refrigerant, on my refrigerator. And to do that, they had to braze copper tubing together. They didn't solder it. They brazed it. Braze was much stronger than soldering. So you've got the gas detector. You've got to have uh, oxyacetylene torch. You need copper tubing flares. You need a few fittings. 
you need some electronic modules. It might be good to have one or two compressors just for inventory. And you're going to need to have a vacuum pump. And you might need a little generator as well. So these are all specialized tools that a normal boater is not going to have. There's just not enough demand. But if you wanted to make a living out there traveling around, and you'd need a sign saying refrigerator mechanic on board, because I think you'd get any any number of people coming up and knocking on the boat and be willing to pay you for your time to fix their refrigeration. I think that'd be a good way to make money traveling on a boat. And once you know it, you can do all sorts of work anywhere else that they have refrigeration units. Now, you need to have some sources lined up where you could get parts when you needed them. And you're, you'd probably want to do some research and figure out what the most common electronic modules you're going to be needing to have a couple extra one of those. But yeah, I think that'd be a great a great trade to practice if you're traveling. It's not rocket science. It's not rocket science, but it is not uh, as easy as a lot of other things. I think mechanics are a lot easier than refrigerations, refrigeration units. Mechanics are just undoing bolts, putting things back together again. Now, my, my heat exchanger. <laughs> Well, I got the heat exchanger out. Well, I didn't get the heat. Let's talk about this story. Okay, this it's a pretty straightforward system. You have this tube of copper tubing that goes in and around through the tubing goes the salt water and around it is the coolant, the freshwater coolant that runs throughout the engine, right? I've never had this out in my boat. It's 20, the engine's about 22, 23 years old now the original engine and I've never delimed the heat exchanger. I thought it'd be a simple process of taking off the two caps and popping out this tube. I started pounding on it. I couldn't get it to come one way or the other. I couldn't get it to move, couldn't get it to budge. There's a Yanmar mechanic here, so I went over and I said, uh, I need to delime my heat exchanger. How much will you charge me for it? He says, well, I'll charge you 50 euros to delime it. And I said, okay, uh, how much to take it out? And he said, well, I'll charge you another 30 euros to take it out. And I said, okay, well, why don't you come over and take it out and delime it for me? And I thought, I'm willing to pay 30 euros to figure out the trick to getting this heat exchanger out of the boat. I want to learn the trick. So he came over, he brought a big hammer with him and a block of wood. And basically, he just pounded on it from one side to the other side, the other side to the other side. And it took him quite a while to pound that thing out of there because it had been stuck in there pretty strong. Once he got it moving back and forth a little bit, we were eventually able to pull it the rest of the way out by hand. But to get it broken loose took quite a bit of effort. Now, you don't want to be hitting it with a hammer because you could crush the copper tubes. So we used a block of wood, or he used a block of wood, that he could pound on with the hammer so he wasn't doing damage to the actual uh, heat exchanger element. Once he got it out, he looked in there and said, there's a lot of rust where there shouldn't be rust. And he said, this is a second engine in it, right? And I said, no, that's the original engine. He said, well, you need to take this jacket out and clean it. I said, well, how much will you charge me for that? And he said, 200 euros for everything. I said, well, it's been so many years let's go ahead and do it and he spent the rest of the day working on that 
that was a lot harder work physically much more difficult than the refrigeration mechanic work now the refrigerator mechanic spent every bit as much time but physically it wasn't as demanding as taking this big heavy cast iron heat exchanger jacket out taking it back to his shop and and cleaning it and deliming it and then putting it back in that took quite of quite a lot of work so got it in the water uh, we've got one more problem that I've got to deal with right now. The engine cutoff cable seems to be jammed, and I can't seem to turn the engine off from the cockpit. I have to come down, open up the engine compartment, and turn it off by pushing a little lever on the engine to shut it down right now. So I'll be working on that. But I just wanted to give you an update. Tomorrow we plan on clearing out of Turkey and sailing over to Pythagoria Samos. And I know I've had people off and on say, why don't you do some podcasts while you're out sailing? And I thought, well, I'll just give you a quick update of what I've been up to so far in this summer sail. Now, my crew right now consists of Mike, Nick, and Erica. Normally, I only like to have two people on the boat, but Mike, Nick, and Erica are all father, son, and daughter. And they're the people that I sailed with, I learned to sail with. They're boat people, so they can put up with the tight quarters that we deal with on a, a little boat like mine. Four people on my boat is pretty crowded, quite honestly. Three people's comfortable, four people's crowded. But they're friends, and I'm looking forward to taking Mike sailing with me for the first time on my boat. Sailed on his boat for many, many years racing, and, and it's nice to return the favor now. All right, so I'll continue with this podcast later on. As time goes on throughout the summer, I may add more comments along the way. I may just use this as a separate podcast. We'll see. We'll see. Thanks for listening. Again, if you're interested in studying for the ASA 101, 103, or 104, I have audio lessons available. They're for sale at the website. There are links to them in iTunes, Amazon, CD Baby, and Gumroad. And if you're interested in studying for those, I'd appreciate the support. Thanks. If you have any comments, drop me a note. Franz at MedSailor.com. Have fun sailing. Joe, you have something to tell me? No, I don't think so. I just got off the telephone with Bill Rutherford. Princeton can use a guy like Joe. What? Princeton can use a guy like Joel. His exact words. That's unbelievable. You're as good as in. I knew you could do it. Haven't I been telling you, every once in a while, you just got to say, what the heck, and take some chances. You are so right. You've made me very proud. I was just thinking where we might be 10 years from now, you know?